Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Caught Looking, a baseball podcast hosted by myself, Max Greenfield, and my co-host, Ryan Garcia. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, you know, again, we have, I mean, we, we could have the final ALCS game of uh, that series tonight. Um, I'm very excited to talk about that series. Uh, overall, had a pretty good weekend. Not really much going on, but I think having a quiet weekend sometimes is a good thing. So, uh, especially after uh, falling flat on my face in bowling last weekend. But, it, you know, have a, re- have a rebound at some point. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, an, an interesting weekend. I, I'm going to spring this on you. I didn't tell you this, but I wanted to rant real quick because... Every time Alex Rodriguez is in the news, I just I, I get I get annoyed. Like the dude never finds a way to not make it about himself in like the worst of ways. Um, and A Rod this week said that he wants his number retired by the Yankees. And like numbers wise, play wise, performance wise, definitely probably should. You know, his performance on the field warrants being. Uh, a guy who should have his number retired. However, this is a man who sued the organization and caused massive amounts of headaches for lots of different people. It was always something off the field with the guy. Like, I feel like the Yankees are not inclined to do that to him. Like, I, they're not inclined to retire his number because he was just such a headache. And I'm tired. Like, this whole, like you know, rejuvenation tour and everything like that, that he went on. It's been kind of wearing away for a couple of years now when he's like, kind of realized like, Ooh, I can start to like say these things again because I earned some good favor. Cause you know, what have you done for me recently? Like thought process amongst the average person, but man, I, I agree. I don't want his number retired. I do not want his number retired. I just don't, I don't think he deserved it in terms of like what it means to like to have your number retired and to have like be in the hall of fame and stuff like that. Like you have to meet a certain on the field and off the field requirement. And like, what's funny is I might vote for a rod in the baseball hall of fame. And when we get to that segment of this pod, we'll we'll discuss it. But like for like the Yankees, the guy was basically just every year. It was something new off the field. And I'm not saying he's a terrible person. I find him to be quite annoying, but like he didn't do anything outright bad, but he also caused so many problems and I don't think guys who caused as many issues as he did deserve to have their number retired. Maybe that's a boomer take of mine, but I just I can't deal with it, man. It's so annoying. I wish he would just stop talking. I I don't necessarily disagree. Like I love Arod. Like I I want to clarify all of this by saying Max above my bed is hanging my first ever Yankee jersey. That is an Alex Rodriguez jersey. My first ever glove was a glove that had, it was like one of those A-Rod models, right? So like, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, like the one, the quote unquote, the glove that he uses, whatever. Um, my number when I played basketball as a kid and played baseball was always 13. My favorite player on any, like anything I like talked about, whatever it was like, who's your favorite player or whatever, always A-Rod. He shouldn't have his number retired. Like it, it's, I, I don't think he should. Um, I, I just, I don't, as you mentioned, like all the off field stuff. Obviously, he did amazing things for the Yankees, but it's like, at some point, like, the Yankees are going to have to, like, undo a lot of the precedents they've set with retiring numbers, right? Like, at some point, that's going to have to right. happen. And I think A-Rod's a good place to start. I'm not saying that it's fair. I'm not saying that it's 
You know, like, is it fair that we start with him and we didn't start with, like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have retired, like, Reggie Jackson's number. I don't know. Like, maybe he didn't spend enough time as a Yankee, right? Like, because they kind of have similar cases. They had really good peaks. But the difference is Reggie and, you know, the difference. And you could also argue, like, hey, he butted heads with the manager a lot. But, like, it doesn't feel like that's even comparable in the same way to what A-Rod did off the field. Like, as you mentioned, he sued the team. It's just not... Like, how do you, is Hal Steinberg going to walk up there and be like, shake his hand, be like, you are awesome. It was great working with you, man. Like, I don't think that's really, like, that's just lying to everybody. Um, but, yeah, no, I just don't, I don't see a reason to retire his number. I think he's recognized enough for what he did in 2009. I think, you know, I mean, even the Hall of Fame, like, should he get in or not? Like, he got suspended for his PD usage, right? So that's going to create a wrinkle anyways. I just don't think, like, if, if he's not... If somebody isn't, if somebody has legitimate reasons to not be in the Hall of Fame, you can question whether they should have their number retired or not. That's my opinion on it. I'm good with that. I am fully okay with that. But I just, when I saw he was back in the news this week, I was like, oh my god, please stop. It's 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 not enough that he goes on every broadcast and just like rips Brian Cashman in subtle ways for like no reason. But clearly, he then to go and be like, yeah, I want my number retired. It's like, dude, what is your problem? Like, have some feel, man. Like, it just, it drives me up a wall to no end. Um, on today's episode, we're going to get into the playoffs as, you know, as we always do, give an update. Um, we're also going to discuss the Gold Glove nominees that were announced. But we're going to start today with wishing a happy birthday to Ichiro Suzuki. He turned 50 today. And I wanted to talk about Ichiro Suzuki and kind of segue into what eventually will turn into Hall of Fame discourse and everything. But also, Ichiro Suzuki is a very good litmus test for how well you can evaluate modern-day advanced uh, metrics. So, if you go by career totals, Ichiro Suzuki, who played in 2,653 games, which is pretty damn impressive when you start your career at 27. He did play until he was 40, 44, um, though, or 45, I should say, though that's kind of on a technicality given his last two years. He played a grand total of 17 games. Um, but he played for a long time, and he had a 104 career WRC+, plus, a 311, 355, 402 slash line, and a 57.7 career Fangraphs war, and a 60 career baseball reference war. Now, those numbers alone would tell you like, oh, that's like a borderline Hall of Famer. But you have to kind of dig deeper here to really see why that's not at all the case, Ryan. Yeah, his prime, I think, more than does the job of getting him into the Hall of Fame, number one. Number two, it comes with the context of he came over later because of, uh, you know, just the way that the international posting system works. Um, and look, we can sit here, like, I, I there's probably going to be the, it, on. I, I can already imagine it. It's Instagram, you open your page, it's like 2035, and it's like, Ichiro Suzuki, compiler, or some shit like that. Um, and... Look, the guy the guy was one of the greatest defensive outfielders 
that we have based on like look i understand defensive data is new and all that stuff relatively speaking uh but in the era in which we've had defensive data he is one of the best defensive players and defensive outfielders of our generation an excellent base runner and look sure was he a dominant hitter no but i don't i I think this is also like a testament to the concept that you can be valuable without being like an elite level hitter like i think nowadays we're kind of seeing a shift away from like this idea that you can provide value in other ways like We'll see like, oh, well, this guy's OPS was this high. It doesn't really matter what his defense and base running are. And I think that's silly. Right? Like, I think if you're an elite defender and you're a good hitter with great base running tools and Winslow replacement is going to usually like these type of players, you should be valued as a really good player. You should be valued as an, am- as an amazing player. Um, and, and again, like Suzuki just year in, year out from 01 to 2010 was just phenomenal, right? Um, he has the peak. I don't, you, you could say he has the longevity, even though that the longevity years weren't great. And overall, he's a very well-rounded player. And I think having a great career overseas too, not that it should help him get into the Hall of Fame, but I think that should matter, right? Like, I think it should matter. You know, I think it, it's not like he came up at 27 because he wasn't a good enough prospect. He came up at 27 because of contractual obligations in Japan, right? Like it's, I feel like it's such a different situation. If you can't appreciate him at, for how good he was in his prime when he was, you know, 27 to 36 years old, then yeah, as you, as you said, it's a litmus it's a litmus test for how well you can read data. This guy again, generational defender in the outfield, pretty good hitter, really really good base runner. That type of player, anytime you'll you'll take that player on your team as one of your best players anytime. That that is a safe bet, high floor player as well. The thing that kind of goes unnoticed here with Ichiro, and, you know, because there were a lot more stolen bases at the time, but by fan graphs, he was worth 75 runs of BSR during that 10-year period. He was a generational base runner and a generational defender who was a good bat. Not a great bat, but a good bat. Like, he was a good hitter. You know, 331, 376, 430. A serious lack of power. Obviously, he only hit 90 home runs and only hit more than 10 home runs in a season three times during that time frame. But it's it doesn't matter because he was so good at everything else that you... He's basically, if you gave Luis Arise speed and the ability to play great outfield defense and be a you know great uh, uh, base runner, that's Ichiro Suzuki. Like, that's how good he was. He hit 372 in a year. 350 his first year, 351 another year, 352 another year. Guy just hit, man. Like, he got a lot of hits. Like, he he found a way to put the ball in play at a very, very high rate. And again, in his first 10 seasons, he had one season under four wins. Guy, by every account, he had a Hall of Fame peak. If you're 10 years if your 10-year peak results in being, on average, like a five-and-a-half win player, I'd call that a Hall of Fame peak. And he did this from when he was 27 to 36. So at the end of his peak is when most players, even if they're good, are falling out of baseball. And he was still finding a way to put up 10 wins when he was 35 and 36. Yeah, it's, it's an easy, easy, easy Hall of Fame case. And as you said, like, this is... Not even including what he did over in Japan, which maybe that matters to some people. Um, I think it kind of does, like, because you have to consider the fact that he wasn't over playing in Major League Baseball, as you said, because of contractual obligations. So you should consider what he did in Japan. 
if he came over when he was 22, we're probably having different conversations about Ichiro Suzuki. We're having conversations about, is like he one of the 20 best players ever? Is he, you know, the best contact hitter the sport has ever seen? Because again, when he was uh, 27, he had a six-win season, won MVP and Rookie of the Year. And then he had arguably his the best year of his career when he was 30. When he had a 131 WRC+, plus, stole 36 bags, scored 101 runs, hit 372, as I said, and was worth 7.1 fan graphs for. Again, like... I believe he also had like a season with 30 defensive runs saved at one in one of his years. It's just if you sit there and just go, well, his career totals after that aren't impressive. Yeah, it's because he was 38 to 44. Of course they weren't gonna be that impressive. Yes, you could argue he was compiling at that point. Who cares? He was 37. And again, by compiling standards, it's not it really didn't get awful until he was 41. And even then, at 42, he had a halfway decent season. Like, but then after, you know, like, in from 2015 to, to 2018, it was, yeah, pretty rough. Like, wasn't that good anymore. Um, but he still, I mean, up until that 2015 season, I'd say, like, he really found ways to still be somewhat, you know, somewhat of a contributor. And so, yeah, I think if you don't, like, if you sit there and say, like, oh, yeah, Ichiro Suzuki, total compiler, not a Hall of Famer. You just got it all wrong, man. Like, you do not know how to look at this and see one of the best baseball players ever. Again, if he had played his whole career in Major League Baseball, we'd probably talk about him as being one of the 20 best players baseball has ever seen. And he probably is one of the 20 be- best players baseball has ever seen if you include his career in Japan. Like, it's probably worth another good 25, 30 wins if he had done that in Major League Baseball, which clearly he could have. Like, he came over and won MVP in his first year. Whether or not he deserved it, another question. But, like, his first 10 years in the league, he was one of the 10 best players in the league. So, by all accounts, he could have been one of the 10 best players in Major League Baseball for an extremely long time. So, I just find it interesting because I feel like most people talk about, when it comes to Ichiro Suzuki, recognize how good he is. But there is that small fraction out there that, like is into sabermetrics but doesn't understand them f- as well as they think they do. And they'll come around and say, like, oh, but his career marks are not as good. And it's like, can you just enjoy a really damn good player who is immensely fun and, like, extremely well-liked that is an icon beyond icons in his home country? Like, he is to Japan what, I don't know, like... I don't think you can compare him to an American baseball player because nobody um, now is revered like that. I mean, remember in his final game, like Yusei Kikuchi is in the dugout just like bawling his eyes out. Like, man, I still watch that video. I'm like, dude, I'm trying not to cry about that. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, and, you know, kind of as you mentioned with like, all right, look, like, sure, his career marks, they're not eye-popping. I understand that. Um, but you, I think the reason why something happens matters so much and why gets ignored so often so often you'll hear like baseball dialogue and the why just doesn't matter it's like yes it does it absolutely does why something happens should matter right if he was 21 and he fell off after 30 that's different right like that is significantly different you're like 
okay, we kind of have to question, right? Like he just, like I get it, injuries, whatever. But even then, if that was still the case, Max, would we still not be talking about him as a Hall of Famer, right? Like I, I feel like it, it, it didn't really matter. It wouldn't really matter what the reason was. I think he still would have gotten into the Hall of Fame. The reason just happens to also be really damn good. And like, yeah, that has, that's no, it's no indictment on your ability to stay healthy. No indictment on your, uh, your conditioning, no indictment on, you know, uh, your, your regression or your skill set or whatever it may be. It is, you just play, you happen to be born in Japan and not in Nevada. That's really it. Like, honestly, that's what it boils down to. You happen to be born in Japan and not Nevada. And people could say, well, just like you can't control where you're born, you can't control injuries. And to an extent, that's true. But injuries have also been used as a reason to get guys into the Hall of Fame or recognize players as great, great players, even if the counting stats aren't phenomenal. I'm not saying that this is a, a, a direct, one-for-one, perfect comparison. But nobody would sit back and say that Sandy Koufax doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because he has 48.9 baseball reference war. And if you do say that, I don't like you. You know what I mean? Like, I do not like you. As a, like, you're wrong. Like, I, I I personally think you're wrong. And look, I get it. Like, I think Koufax obviously had the better peak and all that stuff, right? But we are aware and there's a precedent set in the Hall of Fame that if you are good enough for a certain amount of period of time, you can get into the Hall of Fame without having longevity or with the tail end of your career not looking great. And if you want to say, well, Suzuki was bad uh, after the age of 36. Well, Koufax didn't pitch after the age of 30, right? And for whatever reasons those may be that were out of their control, it's, it is that is what it is. Would I take a player who played but wasn't good or a player who didn't play? I don't know. I consider it maybe a net neutral, whatever it may be. But you can get into the Hall of Fame with a great peak. That's already been established. It's not like this is a new situation. We've had situations like this before. I know Johan Santana kind of throws a wrench in that, but I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. So that I, at least I'm being consistent, I feel like. Yeah, it's also, again, like, Ichiro's peak is 10 years and a five-and-a-half win player across those 10 years, a generational base runner, a good hitter, and an amazing, the one of the best defensive outfielders in baseball. Like, that's a Hall of Famer. It doesn't as soon as as soon as 2010 ended, it was like this guy's on the he's going to make the Hall of Fame. It's over. Like he could have not played. Well, actually he would have had to play one more year or he could have I think he might have been eligible at the end of that year. I can't remember how it works. It's like 10 seasons, so I think he would have been fine. Um he could have retired and that would have been it. He would have been in the Hall of Fame. So we're discussing the Hall of Fame early, but I think the ballot comes out in like I think like a month or so. So we're just getting a head start on a guy who's not eligible on this one, but I think on the next one he's uh, he's going to be eligible for it. Um, I can't wait till we discuss Chase Utley. I'm very excited to to argue about why. Well, I think we agree though that Chase Utley is a Hall of Famer. Um, moving on, we're going to look back on this past week um, with the playoffs. Uh, if you remember, you know, go all the way back to a week ago. Um, Ryan and I both predicted that Texas would beat the Astros in this series. And across the first two games, Ryan, we were looking really good. Really, really good. And then they started... Uh, who did they start in Game 3? Max Scherzer coming off an injury. And it looked like they actually expected him to go like more than two or three innings. And yeah, it did not go very well. Yeah, the Rangers have, for the last three games, just played... 
I mean, they they basically they they had game five under wraps, and then and I was actually watching with my brother, and we had the same thought process, and it was that John Singleton at bat, and I or play appearance, excuse me. Uh, I have to be technical here. It was a walk, so it's a play appearance. Um, he threw a three-two changeup. You landed two fastballs. And you threw a change. I don't understand. Like, look, I get it. Nerves. I'm not on that mound. I'm not behind the plate. I am not qualified to do either of those things. Game call, pitch call, whatever it may be. I found it so weird that they were pitching to John Singleton like he was Jose Altuve. They were, I mean, you couldn't land anything. Throw the fastball, dude. Challenge him. If he be, if John Singleton comes off the bench and ties that damn game, tip the cap. John Singleton, you just tip the cap, right? That's no disrespect to John Singleton. He actually has a great story as to how he got back into baseball. And to kind of like turn it back to more appreciating that that play appearance, I mean, he just had like a season-saving play appearance for the Houston Astros. And a year ago, he was out of professional baseball, right? Like that is an incredible story. I That is an awesome moment for him. I don't want to take away from that. I, I really want, I, I, I hope I didn't, I, I hope, I don't think he's listening to this, but if he is, I, I hope he knows that that is a great story and a great thing. And I don't want to take away from that. But the Rangers, they, they didn't pitch in the first, as I mentioned, Scherzer stunk. Um, they blew a Monty game, which like, that's pretty normal, right? Like that, we are very accustomed to that. Bound to happen eventually, yeah. God damn it! And it's like, look, at some point, you know, the Texas bullpen was going to rear its ugly head and it did. Um, and you know, the Astros look when it came down to it, you know, the face of their franchise comes up and he hits the biggest home run of the postseason thus far. Uh, it, it was that simple, right? Like the Rangers weakness and the Astros franchise, the face of the franchise, they clashed and, uh, Astros came out on top there. I, I know that that simplifies what happened in game four, which was another bludgeoning, but I really feel like game five was like the, okay, the Astros are winning this series, right? Yeah, I'd be like Nathan Ovaldi's going today, and even if the Rangers win, does it really change the outcome of the series that much? I it could, right? But like in Game Seven, it'd be the Rangers pitching staff all hands on deck versus the Astros pitching staff all hands on deck, and uh, yeah, you give the advantage to the Astros. What's interesting in the first two games, you know, Montgomery and Ovaldi pitched really, really well, and you know, obviously they won those games. And then again, they get another not great of all these start or sorry, Montgomery start. He was not particularly sharp in game five. Uh, neither was Verlander. Um, and, you know, got into a bases loaded situation. They brought in a reliever. He gets out of it with only giving up one run. Like, a, a, you know, it's, it's a two to one game um, entering the bottom of the sixth. And then in the bottom of the inning, Verlander gives up two base runners. Up comes Adolis Garcia, and immediately I'm like, there's no way you can stick with Verlander here. Like, I know he's only thrown 70-something pitches, but, like, this is just a ball that's begging to be crushed if Verlander throws it here. And he threw a first pitch. I think it was fastball, right? Threw a first pitch fastball inside, and Adolis put it into the seats. Um, And Adolis very much let everybody know about it, as he should. Up until what had happened, that was the biggest home run of the postseason. I mean, the energy in that crowd was amazing. Joe Davis crushes that call. Uh, Very good playoff broadcaster. I do miss Joe Buck a little bit, but Joe Davis is really, really good at this. He's really, really good at these moments, so it doesn't hurt too bad. Um, And 
that created a moment um, because in his next at-bat, in the bottom of the eighth inning, uh, after Jose Leclerc had uh, gotten out of a jam in the top of the eighth inning, um, Adolis gets hit on the first pitch with a runner on first and nobody out. Or the second pitch? Was it the first pitch or the second pitch? I think it was the, the first, first pitch. pitch right? Yeah. And listen, the situation would tell you it, it would that would be dumb for it to be intentional. Um, and I would agree that it wouldn't make sense. And Abreu has command problems. Um, but here's the thing. If you go by Abreu's reaction, if you go by Maldonado's reaction... Not a lot there said that it wasn't intentional. Um, and baseball players are not smart. You cannot give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to be able to think through a logical situation like that. Just just being honest here. It, it's They're going to let their emotions get the better of them at times because they're riding high off of it. That's why they're so good, is they use their, those emotions to their advantage. Um, Abreu gets ejected, Adolis gets ejected, Dusty Baker gets ejected, Baker actually kind of puts up a pretty good fight and kind of entertaining fight, and then just kind of hangs out in the dugout, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that delay caused like, I don't know, what was, it was like 10, 15 minutes though, it was a pretty long delay. So now that means Jose Leclerc has been sitting there for like 20 minutes, and that's a long time to sit down um, for a reliever. And so... Ryan Presley comes in, gets out of the jam. Guy's unbelievable in the playoffs. Leclerc obviously gives up the home run to Altuve. Um, throwing in, like, if you throw a changeup right on right, like, it can't be a strike. Like, you cannot throw a strike there. And uh, he did, and it went very far. And so the Rangers end up losing, and now they're facing elimination as the game's about to start. But, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's not great pitch calling, not great game management, whatever. But today, or yesterday, it was announced that Brian Abreu was going to be suspended for two games. And then today he filed his appeal. And a lot of people felt that the suspension was taking it too far. I, however, disagree. If you throw at a guy intentionally, you should automatically be suspended because it makes no sense to do that. It You are putting, you are putting people in harm's way. You are risking injury to reward a guy who did something good. It makes no sense. So to fully get rid of it, in my opinion, you should suspend players. And so I thought they did the right thing um, in suspending Abreu if they felt it was intentional. And again, if the coaching staff and the, you know, the guys in the moment and the umpires and major league baseball felt it was intentional, I'm not really going to argue with them. I don't know if it was intentional or not. It really seemed like it was based off of body reactions and everything, but I don't know. And so I'm okay with him being suspended because I think if you throw at a guy intentionally, you should automatically be suspended. And clearly Major League Baseball feels the same way. Yeah, the way I look at it is, I mean, look, if you're going to try to sit here and say that was definitely not intentional and you are watching from your TV on your couch, let's be real, you don't know. You don't know. Like I, I, I tweeted this out, like the worst take you could have isn't he did it intentionally or he didn't do it intentionally. The worst take you could have is saying he did it intentionally or unintentionally. And I 100% know this. And this is not debatable. That I think is the worst thing you could have on this. You're not on the field, right? Like I I'll take the opinions of umpires and, and, and people who review, you know, the on field, the on field uh, audio and all that stuff to figure out if it was intentional or not more than I'll trust 
Astros fan 445 on Twitter, or that's a really bad combination of numbers to use for a sports fan. Um, or, or like, you know, Rangers or Dolis Garcia season. First name bunch of numbers. Right. Guy. You know what I mean? Like, just like, I'm not trying to, ins- like, look, I'm not trying to insult the state of Texas here, but you know, like I, this, ha- like I'm a New York Yankees fan. Like I trust me, I know what bad fan bases look like. Um, But you know, my point is like, I just don't, I think so many people are trying to feel like trying to come off as experts on the situation. You're not an expert like that. You're not part of the ruling decision. You aren't on the field. You do not know anything. You you do like you. All you know is that a guy was hit and then the, uh, and Odoles Garcia got mad and that these two teams don't like each other. That's all you know. That is literally all you know. So, um, yeah, if they determined there was intent in that, he should absolutely be suspended. There's no doubt about it, right? Like that is dangerous stuff. That is a 100 mile per hour fastball heading towards somebody's head. I don't care if you think he was showboating. I don't care if you think it was unprofessional. I don't care what you think. There is nothing Adolis Garcia did in his celebration that could be remotely considered worthy of getting 100 miles an hour thrown at you. Not a shot. Like, there's none. No no reason. I, I don't understand this fascination with needing to retaliate with violence, like this glorification of hurting others. It, the guy stared at his home run. I, do you, are you, like who cares, man? Who cares? Who cares? Who like if you cares? care, man. It, like I saw, like well, you. You know who I'm talking. That Wes. What's his last name? Wes. Uh, Wes Clemens. Yeah, Wes that Clemens. guy is getting torn a new one. Wes the past Clemens. Few days. Thank God. Him and Jeff Fry bother me not because they are boomers or whatever. I've said this to Max in passing. I've said this to a lot of people. I am okay with somebody who has baseball opinions I don't agree with. But if they're but they're a fine person because overall being a good person I think is better for society than being smart with baseball. But these two guys come out and they attack the credibility of other players, former and current. I mean, you saw that thing with with Ryan O'Hearn. You saw the thing with uh, Derek Holland. Obviously, Brent Rooker and Jeff Fry have gone at it. These guys think they're they have authority. They were not like. First off, Jeff Fry wasn't a good major league player. So he's talking to guys who've had major league success. Derek Holland has more major league success than Mr. Jeff Fry does. Brett Rooker, already this year, by just doing what he did this year, will likely put himself in a position to have more major league success than Jeff Fry did. I, Ryan O'Hearn this year had a pretty good year. Has Wes, has Wes Clemens played major league baseball? I'm not. Has he? Was he? He did not. He, did, so, he was a career minor Um, Like, where did these guys think they can come out and and disrespect other players and question their authority and question their perspective, right? I know that, like, I am not a person who thinks that you should say, oh, a fan can never know more than a former or current player about baseball. But it is doubly, I think, disrespectful and doubly stupid when a player tries to come out and call another player not credible to talk on something. You, like, Wes Clemens, Jeff Fry, there is nobody in baseball to hire you. Nobody. Nobody in baseball to hire you. And clearly, nobody in baseball really thought you were that valuable on the field because you, you weren't regular, you weren't everyday starters, you weren't guys that got massive contracts. So stop coming off as if you're these, you know, these pillars of the game. You guys know so much more than everybody else. You're you're just like everybody else, you're students of the game, you're gonna be wrong. And you know what? You two just happen to always be wrong on these kinds of things. So that's that's my spiel on that. Always. Yeah, they're they're always wrong. Yeah, the the Derek Holland Jeff Fry thing that was hilarious. It's so funny. If you uh, if you're listening to this and you don't know what I'm talking about, just go onto Derek Holland's Twitter page. Uh, it was so 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 funny to see that interaction. Totally did not see it coming. But like, good for Derek Holland, man. Like, it is interesting that those guys have gotten a lot more pushback from players this off season than they have before. Maybe just people are tired of it. I I know I am. Jeff Fry actually follows me on Twitter too, which is weird. I don't I don't know why. 
Like, I tweet about stuff that he hates all the time, and yet he follows me. But he follows, like, 3,000 other people, so he probably just never sees my tweets. Like, that would be my guess. Um, and he's just like, oh, he's a pitching coach. Like, like follow. Like, whatever. Um, Ryan, do you think the Rangers come back, or do you think the Astros hold on tonight? Yeah, the Astros. I don't know if they're winning tonight, but I think they'll win one of the next two games. I don't think the Rangers are... I mean, have the... this Now, now I will say this. The Astros have been in this situation before where they've won every game on the road, lost every but game never at, won home, at home, yeah. and went to home up 3-2 against a team that you're like, yeah, they're not, they're they're probably not, like they're talented, but they're maybe not better. I'm not saying that to say that because they lost the Washington Nationals, they're going to lose to the Texas Rangers, but more so to say because that already happened once, you can assume it's possible to happen again, but I think the Astros are taking this. As you mentioned, it's like, if you, any game where it's like Rangers pitching staff versus you're like, ah, you're kind of like throwing up in your mouth a little bit. Um, that bullpen stinks. Yep. That bullpen, you can, you know, got to hold up your nose when you see it sometimes on your phone. It's it's not very good for a playoff pitching staff. But yeah, Astros get it done. I think they'll get it done in game seven. I think the uh, Rangers will win tonight. Fair enough. I'm, uh, I think I actually agree. I think the Rangers win tonight, but I don't think they, they come back and win game seven. Yeah, I mean. I think they needed to win one game in Texas for them to have won the series, um, and they did not get it done. Um, moving to the National League, um, if you had watched the first two games of the NLCS, you thought this series had no chance of being interesting, and honestly, would not blame you, because after game two, when the Phillies won 10-1, to the Diamondbacks looked thoroughly overmatched. Um, and I gotta, I gotta give it some comparisons to the series with Atlanta, where you know, you know Orlando Arcia says out of boy Harper and everything like that, and you know the Braves, you know, uh, offense or position players are just like oh, the big clubhouse is sacred. Um, the backup catcher Garrett Stubbs says, "Yeah, that pool's gonna be we're gonna be darting right for that pool." And the Diamondbacks, their manager openly said, "Yeah, we use that as motivation." And you know what? Props to the Diamondbacks. Brandon Font, absolutely stellar outing unbelievable outing in a what was it game three right he started game three um and so they ended up winning um games three and games four uh game three they actually won on a walk-off um walking off craig kimbrell um it was game three with brandon fought and it was interesting because there was a bit of hublo about his start because he got pulled after 70 pitches in the sixth inning, Kyle Schwarber was coming up for the third time through. Font had gone five and two-thirds, two hits, no walks, nine strikeouts. I mean, he he dealt. He was unbelievably good in game three. And he got pulled. And a lot of people were mad he got pulled. I don't think not not a lot, but there were some people who were mad he was pulled. Jeff Passan went on his like little passive-aggressive tirade that he kind of does whenever a pitcher gets pulled early. He's kind of weird about those things. Um but he got pulled. The Diamondbacks gave up a run in the next inning, but then they tied it in the bottom of the seventh. Um, and then they walked it up in the bottom of the ninth, Cattell Marte, which led to, you know, kind of a weird Twitter thing. But I'm not going to go into that because I, I just I don't want to. It was weird. I just like Cattell Marte. He's a good player. But do you think it was interesting that I feel like the general consensus was that Font was pulled at the right time? One thing I'll say is it's funny because, one, I do think he was pulled at the right time. But, two, then you have the Gallon game where Gallon might have been left in a little too long. 
Right. And look, I'll say this, like, you mentioned, like, the Passan suite where, like, he got on his soapbox, and as a guy who is not very vertically gifted, I understand the need to want to be on a soapbox, but, um, you know, I, I, dude, like, if you're getting mad about the FOP thing, this is just how modern baseball works. Like, teams are aware of these third-time-through penalties, and even an okay bullpen should probably be going to their okay bullpen. I'm not saying that, you know, you can't read a situation and say, hey, if Garrett Cole is finished six innings and he's struck out 11 batters and walked one and has allowed two hits, yeah, you should probably let him pitch a seventh. But, well, number one, Brandon Fott isn't Garrett Cole. And then number two, in the Gallon case, Gallon didn't look like that that night. Gallon didn't look like Zach, the Zach Gallon was competing for a Cy Young for 90% of the season. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, if we want to talk about feel, if we want to talk about, like, reading the game and reading players... I think Tori Lovello, for the most part, has done a solid job this year, but I think that was a, a miss. really good job this year. I, I, I yeah. thought that's I thought that was a pretty big miss. Like you got to read your pitcher, you got to read the situation, you got to read what Kosh Schwarber's been doing, you got to read what Bryce Harper's been doing. There's no reason you should have faced Bryce Harper. Once you give up the home run to Schwarber, it's like why is he facing Harper at this point? Um, but yeah, I mean, also tying back to the thing that Garrett Stubbs said, and then you know Lovello kind of coming out and confirming that. Yeah, yeah, we we paid attention there. If you're if you're a Philly fan and you're mad about it, look, the whole postseason for you has kind of been about you know quotes, right? Like it's 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 been about quotes. It's been about and it the didn't RCA bother quotes. the Phillies players, right? Right? Like they they just went out there and played. And they're like, cool, that's what you should do. You should use that as motivation. And then they won. You know, they ended up winning Game Five, right? But like they didn't they didn't care that Arizona was mad about it. They exactly. Were like, yeah, you should be. You I should actually, be mad. I'm very glad. I'm very happy with how Philly, as for the most part, as a clubhouse handles like people saying things about them it's never really like uh oh this is why how would you how could you say this about us this is terrible like uh, all that stuff or like uh, you know if a quote gets out you know all that stuff they just show up and play like i don't think they'd tell you because garrett Stubbs said what he said but we didn't win that wasn't a big fuss it, w- it would only have been a big fuss that uh if they lost right like i mean so that's what some people would say about you know that's what the braves did i don't think the phillies would act that way but um i don't know them and i'm not gonna make uh, sweeping claims either way but overall like this series is interesting at least like this series got interesting now i kind of feel more strongly about this than i do with the rangers i think there's an off chance the rangers could get hot and win two of the ro- in a row the rangers just, the rangers have just kind of been weird all season like they are the type of teams who lose all three games at home and then win two on the road um the diamondbacks i think are done i think the diamondbacks are done i i, I think yeah even if, i think they would have had to swept swept every game at home and even then i wouldn't have felt great about their chances just because that Philly bullpen, I think, is better equipped. They have more high-octane stuff, guys. Um, and then it's Citizens Bank Park, and that's kind of just been a massive advantage for them at home for a good sample now. And I think something that, you know, has to get discussed is they got Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, and Ranger Suarez set up for 5, 6, and 7. And Wheeler delivered in, in Game 5. But to, to, to get to Game 4, and we were talking about, you know, polling managers— uh, and manager decisions and everything. It did think it was interesting that Rob Thompson started Christopher Sanchez, which I thought was honestly the right decision to start Sanchez. You're trying to get him in a situation where maybe he doesn't give up as many home runs. You know, Arizona, the ball does not fly as uh, as be- as well as it could in Citizens Bank Park, I'd say. Um, so that was a good decision. But he wasn't given a ton of length or a ton of room to work with, I should say. Um, and then he didn't go to Taiwan Walker, which I thought was interesting, but I thought it was more interesting that he went to Jeff Hoffman so early and then that caused them to use Craig Kimbrell in the eighth and that ended up not working out very well. Um, 
I think I don't know if I would have gone to Walker. He's just not that good. Um, but like, if you just wanted Walker to get you like two or three innings, I think the argument was there to use him in that situation. And then obviously Kimbrell blows it in the eighth. Now, listen, the Alec Thomas home run, that's a 97 mile an hour fastball painted on the outside corner and Thomas hit it to right center field. He had literally never done that in his career. Tip your cap. Like, that's just really damn impressive hitting. Um, And then everything from there on out. Like, yeah, like Diamondbacks have, they feel, momentum is this thing that, it's easy to say it doesn't exist, right? Because statistically in every sport, you cannot prove it. Because especially in baseball, in one pitch, momentum can be seized. But you feel it as a player and you feel it as a coach. Like you can, I've been in the dugout many a times as a coach where I could feel momentum was on our side and I could feel it slipping away. Um, and how hard it is to recapture it at times. But once he hit that home run, you could tell in the, the, the mannerisms of the Diamondbacks' swings that they were really confident that they would win the game. And that obviously it worked out. Um, now shifting to Game 5, you're feeling pretty good about things if you're a Diamondbacks fan you're like, or a Diamondbacks player. You've won two in a row. It's a tied series. Best of three. Anything can really happen at this point. And the Phillies really needed a long start out of Zach Wheeler. And he delivered seven innings of one-run ball. And honestly, I probably would have sent him out there for the eighth. Like, it worked out. But I thought I honestly thought Thompson was wrong. I thought he should have sent Wheeler back out there for the eighth. I know he was at 99 pitches and everything. But, like, just saving your bullpen an extra day, like... Instead of Sir Anthony Dominguez pitching in the ninth, it's Jeff Hoffman in the ninth, and that's that's it, right? Like, I think that was ultimately where I disagreed, but it's hard to say they were wrong. They won 6-1, to one, but, I mean, Zach Wheeler was special in Game 5. He was really, really, really damn good. He gave up his home run that he has to give up every start, it feels like. Uh, he has to give up at least one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Zach Wheeler... Aaron Nola going tomorrow. It, this team should be on its trip to the World Series. Yeah, I agree. We we might end up getting a rematch, and it, it's okay. It's it's inherently kind of funny that like the Phillies like, oh, we've developed Ranger Suarez. That's awesome. Here is Ranger Suarez 2.0, and Christopher Sanchez, which is like left handed that you kind of didn't really see coming with you know great ground ball rates, a sinker that is hard to lift. Now it's funny that Sanchez has such bad home run problems, given the fact that he throws a sinker that. You shouldn't be able to lift and a changeup that you also shouldn't be able to lift. But for some reason, hitters had have had a little bit of a better time. Now he is left-handed, so you're going to be facing more righties, and I imagine that that's an inherent disadvantage. Um, but Philly, as you mentioned, they, they're set up pitching-wise. Um, Zach Wheeler has been, I mean, cerebral. I think is the best way to put it, right? Like he's been, he's been everything you want. Yeah, and for, as a free agent signing, man. Couldn't have nailed it more. Yeah, like the wow. old the old administration. You know, I know Dombrowski done a lot of things, but he, man, did a great job uh, signing signing Zach Wheeler. I really wanted him to, and, and kind so of I'm, developing I feel him good too. About no, that. like not developing, but like he he took off with Philly. He didn't have the they recognized that the underlying stuff was there that. If he were just a couple a couple tweaks 
and he would be really, really good. And they believed in that, and they paid. Remember, if you go back to 2019, Zach Wheeler's contract, there were a lot of people who were like, that's a lot of money for Zach Wheeler. But I remember people like Eno Sarnes, always ahead of the curve, uh, and Mike Petriotto like, no, man, like, that's a good contract. Like, that's going to age really, really well. I said that too, but I'm not trying to toot my own horn a lot. Like, I already said that I really wanted him. But, yeah, they believed in him, and they made him better. They also, you know, just trusted him to do the job, too. I think that was a big difference was there was some, there was some, his handling on the Mets wasn't, like, amazing, right? There was always some doubt with him for some weird reason. Um, and he went to a place where, yeah, like, they're like, you're the guy that we want to be our, you know, one or two. You know, you're going to make starts in game one or game two of series. We believe in you to do that. And we believe if you make these tweaks, you'll do it. And obviously it's paying off. Like he's, you could argue that since he signed, he's been the best pitcher in baseball. You could make that argument. Yeah. And in, again, like he's made all 10 of his playoff starts with the Phillies over the course of the last two seasons, two, four, eight ERA averaging over six innings, a start 3.9% walk rate, 28.9% strikeout rate, zero, not zero, seven, three home runs per nine, which means that his home runs per nine, if I'm not mistaken, are a little, it's actually a, t- a tad bit lower than his career with Philly, but since 2020, uh, also a little bit of a tick below. Um, ground ball rate is up. Uh, again, the strikeouts to walk rate is up. He just he just seems to show up in these games, and I, I, honestly, man, and he's durable. Like last two year, last three years, 32 starts, now 26. Even 26, you would say is quote unquote not a ton, but having an injury prone year for your standards and having 153 innings is awesome. And then in 2021, and and this is important to note because. The context of the 2020 season, he came out and tossed 213 in the third innings in a year where it's like, like even Garrett Cole looked a little bit winded down the stretch. He had a hamstring injury. Uh, guys were just not built up for that. And he was. And it's also this adage of you're injury prone until you're not. Zach Wheeler was injury prone until he was not. Right? Like that's in baseball. Injuries are so weird. Like how could, how could you reasonably predict that a guy through his age 20 to 26 years would be less healthy than he would through his age 31 to 33 seasons. I think that's kind of hilarious. It was hard to see coming in terms of in terms of his health. I also think it's funny when you go to his fan graphs page, it says bats left, throws right. It's so funny. Um, just 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 absolutely hilarious. But yeah, the the issue with Wheeler was you had some concerns about his health. But in 2018 and 2019, 182 innings for the Mets and then 195 innings, 29 starts, 31 starts, really, really strong peripheral numbers those years. I mean, I think he had, between the two seasons, he had a 3.37 FIP across a 3.65 ERA. A little bit higher on, on the XFIP, but he was good. Like, And then he goes to Philly, and it's funny. His first year in Philly, he has like an 18% strikeout rate and a 5% walk rate. And then every year since then, it hasn't been under... Uh, it's actually in 2022 and 2023, it was the exact same, 26.9. So he transformed himself, which, as we said, we you know we already talked about. But yeah, he's been everything you could have wanted. And since he signed that contract, he is first in Fangraph's war as a pitcher. I mean, he turned himself into a guy who went from like, yeah, he's pretty good to, man, if he ages really well to like 38, there's a chance that we're watching like a borderline Hall of Fame pitcher. I mean... He's really good, and it sucks that he's not going to win the Cy Young because I feel like after 2021, he should um, win at least one. 
Um, but yeah, he's he's really good, man. Um, he's throwing a lot harder uh, with the Phillies. Now it's back to what it was when he was with the Mets. But his first couple of years with the Phillies, he was throwing a lot harder. Um, yeah, it's he's he's just really good, man. And Aaron Nola, it's funny. Um, they were talking about this on one of the broadcasts, but the fix for Nola was he was trying to look over his shoulder to look at the pitch clock, and they thought it was messing with his mechanics to where he would open up his front shoulder just a little too early, and that was throwing things off, and they told him to stop looking at it and just look at the one to his right that he didn't have to turn to see, and apparently his mechanics fixed because in his in his uh, two playoff starts, he'll get the ball again tomorrow. He didn't really damn good. So they, I mean, they throw front three of Wheeler, Nola, and Suarez out there, which I think is the best front three of any team left in the postseason. I, they're really good. I think that there's a very good chance that they win it all. I mean, the boys bop. They they just go out there. And they, they do. They, 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 they bop. Hit. Like I look. I, I I think the Phillies winning the World Series would be really good for baseball for multiple reasons. Number one, they spent. They went out and they made a giant financial investment, and they won games. Now look, we can sit here and say, well, was it the most efficient usage of like finances? No, it wasn't perfect. I understand. Like I'm not sitting like, and you mentioned like Zach Wheeler was a not a Dave Dombrowski thing. That was a pr- prior regime, right? Um, the JT Rumuto trade was not a uh, was a was a previous regime, right? All that stuff. Um, but the big the overarching thing is when you make when when you make these financial investments, when you go all in, when you put in the investment in a ball club that is very good or is capable of winning a World Series good things should happen, right? You get to the precipice. You are two wins away from winning your first World Series since 2008. And your response wasn't, all right, uh, we were close. We made a lot of money. We'll probably make the playoffs again and make a good amount of money again. And everybody's going to pack, you know, Citizens Bank Park and all that good stuff. No, they went out and they signed Trey Turner, right? Like they they went out and they're like, hey, we're going to like, we're going to make another massive, massive financial investment because that's what you do. That's what you do when you're trying to win games. You're not... I think that they are a testament to what you should be trying to do, which is throw really hard, hit a lot of home runs, and spend a ton of money. Do you, you do those three things reliably, you're going you're gonna to do really well in the postseason because you're going to have the depth and you're going to have a lot of things. And also, Dombrowski hires some pretty good people. Like it, Consistently, you'll hear people just come on and say, yeah, he's, he's a great guy to work with, all that stuff. And I think that goes unnoticed when it comes to GM as well. Props to John Middleton for basically being like the only owner I know in baseball to have based maybe in San Diego too, but to have said, what does financial flexibility get me? What does, what does that leave as a legacy? Like the only thing that matters is if we win, like that's the legacy I want props, man. That's awesome. That's a goddamn great way of looking at it. Like being like, you know what? We need to win, and that that because that's what matters. Um, moving on to the Gold Glove nominations came out this week, and if you're like myself, um, you probably haven't paid too much attention to Gold Glove nominations and Gold Glove winners much in recent years because, you know, they haven't really gotten it right a lot <laughs> in recent years. But the nominees this year were a little bit better. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't awful. Um, so we're going to go position by position, and we'll do the American League and the National League at the same time. 
Um, or should we do, let's, you know what, let's do American League first. We'll just do all of American League. So um, starting at first base, um, the American League first base nominees, this is crazy because I think the leader here is with three defensive runs saved, which tells you the quality of first base defense in the American League this year was really not good. Um, Nathaniel Lau of Texas, Ryan Mountcastle of Baltimore, and Anthony Rizzo of the New York Yankees. Um, he Rizzo also leads um, with six outs above average. He's got four gold gloves. And not to be a homer here, but it's hard to see how he doesn't win this award. I would agree. He's my pick. Like he's, if you're statistically the best defensive first baseman in your pool of finalists, you should win. The end. Yeah, it. It's more just like sad that this is the pool than anything. I I think it's the thing that makes me laugh a little bit. Um, moving towards uh, second baseman, this is actually a little bit more interesting. I I thought that this was this was actually pretty good. Uh, Mauricio Dubon of the Houston Astros was a nominee. Andres Jimenez, who was the winner last year, uh, is also a nominee. And Marcus Simeon uh, was a, uh, uh, is a nominee. And I believe Simeon was a nominee last year as well. Um, this one, actually, they did... I want to give them props. They did a pretty good job. Um, if you go to the defensive run saved leaderboards and you go to look at second base, Andres Jimenez is first with 23 Marcus Simeon is second with 16 um and then if you go to the outs above average uh Jimenez is second with 18 outs above average and Simeon is fifth with 13 outs above average um Jimenez is going to win but they actually did a pretty good job on the nominations here like they 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 they, they did well and Jimenez should win he's unbelievable at second base the guy's like otherworldly over there um fun fact if you go to the second base outs above average leaderboards Tyro Estrada is first. Another fun fact, shout out to Emily Nyman. He got shot before he, Jacoby Ellsbury ever played another game. I, I, that, Tyro, first off, Tyro Estrada, what a, just, just what a dude. Just, just one of the dudes. Um, but it's Andres Jimenez's ward. Um, that man is, that man is going back to back. Now, Marcus Simeon, it's, if, 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 if you played any other position and put up that defensive value, he's winning rookie, uh, not rookie of the year, gold glove. Uh, especially in the American League, where like we're gonna get into some other positions, it was just I feel like it, the crop was not great. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know what happened to AL this year, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, Andres Jimenez, I mean, look, he didn't have the offensive you're looking for, but he was so good defensively that he's still worth the contract extension. Like that's that's just why that's why they paid him because he is. I don't know if I want. I mean, I think I might have to use the word generational. No, right? Like, yeah. Defensively, yeah, he's a generational yeah. defender. He's uh, so uh, good. Uh, he should play shortstop. I don't know why he doesn't. Why does he not play shortstop? Do we know why he doesn't play shortstop? Um, I think it's a comfort thing. Okay, if I remember reading correctly, he's much more comfortable hey, at that's second fine. base than he is at shortstop. Um, but yeah, I mean, he he really damn yeah. good. Over yeah, there. yeah, no, it's, it's his. Yeah, um, moving to third base, uh, again, like. If you look at the leaderboards, they did a pretty good job here. Um, Matt Chapman of the Toronto Blue Jays, Alex Bregman of the Houston Astros, and Jose Ramirez of the Cleveland Guardians. I think a potential snub here, depending on how you view it, is Michael Garcia, you know, or Eugenio Suarez, um, because they both had 10 plus outs above average, and Matt Chapman only had four, and um, 
Alex Bregman also only had one, but he did have five defensive runs saved, and Chapman had 12 defensive runs saved versus negative two for each of them. So this kind of just comes down to, like, which metric do you prefer? Um, and so this one's actually kind of tough. It's probably going to be Chapman, but it is, it's it's not, like, overwhelmingly in his favor. I think you can make an argument for Jose Ramirez here, given the fact that he's slightly better and outs above average. But I think for me, it's they're roughly the same and outs above average. And then there's a big jump in defensive runs saved in Chapman's favor that I'm leaning towards Chapman here. Um, but overall, it's close. Like I, I'm not entirely sure if they're going to get it right because historically, he would tell you they won't. But I think you I think you can reasonably argue that it's probably going to be Chapman because of his reputation as well. I mean, he's still very good over there. Like it's he's not as good as he once was where he was like this guy's the best defender in baseball, but like he's still very good at third base. Uh yeah, I I'm going with Matt Chapman. We are lockstep here. I don't I I second everything you say. It's Matt Chapman in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um shortstop, this is brutal. I think we can both agree that the finalists here are brutal um the big snub of bobby witt jr here huge 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 snub like i'm i'm genuinely shocked how he wasn't even a nominee um i know like wander franco also like statistically probably should have been a nominee but i'm not going down that rabbit hole (laughs) Um, but Witt Jr. had 14 outs above average, but he had negative six defensive runs saved for some weird reason. Um, and clearly the voters are valuing defensive runs saved pretty highly here because Anthony Volpe had 15 um, and he's probably going to win. But Corey Seager had five defensive runs saved and negative two outs above average. And then uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Carlos Correa was negative in both and he was a finalist. Oh, yeah, I, this is bad. Like, this is just, I mean, really? Like, I'm not disagreeing that Volpe shouldn't have been a finalist. Like, I think he should have been. Um, Because I think, you know, though he only had one out above average, like, I think you can reasonably argue that between the defensive run saved and the outs above average that he should be a nominee. Um, It's also like, again, in the American League, outside of Bobby Witt Jr. and a guy that shouldn't be nominated... You could say Javier Baez should have been nominated, I guess, but there's not a lot of overwhelming candidates here, but Seager and Correa being finalists, I mean, that's pretty damn bad. Yeah, so I just want to clarify. So Corey Seager obviously had plus five defensive runs saved, so maybe they were looking at DRS there. I think Baez should have been a nominee. I would have gone Baez, Witt, and Volpe as my finalists, Um, but... Uh, yeah, I just want to clarify, you know, like Carl's Craig not only had negative one outs above average, he also had negative 1.7 UCR and a negative two defensive run saved. He wasn't at negative, uh, according to every defensive metric um, at the position. And also, you know, it's not like he hit his way to like Corey Seager, not saying that you should be able to hit your way to a gold glove. 
It's definitely a thing, though. Yeah, like you've, you got, historically yeah, speaking, I mean, you're gonna give it to a guy. Who, like, are we gonna let a guy who had a 96 WRC plus hit his way into a Gold Glove and had like a the same on base percentage as like Isaiah kind of Falefa? Like, are we serious? Like, I'm not doing that. It's not happening. It's not happening. Like, I'm if if he wins the award, like I I won't be mad. I'll be I'm not gonna be mad if Seager wins it because like I'm not gonna say he deserves it, but like I'll understand how it happened, even if it's dumb. Volpe obviously I think is the most deserving candidate of the three. But Correa should not win this award. Like that's the obvious. Correa wins this award, and you, you gotta you gotta ask yourself, what the hell are we doing, man? Um, he he's the one. Who, like this is the first time where I'm looking at a pool of the players. I'm like, dude, this guy was not good defensively. How the hell is he here? So, yeah. It'll again. The Yankees are gonna win two Gold Gloves and have a Cy Young winner in a season. They went 82 and 80. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> They also might have a Silver Slugger award if Judge like if Judge finds a way to win that. I, I don't think he will, but like that'd be they rack up a weird amount of hardware for a year. They were not very good, um, which is funny. Moving to left field, uh, the nominees are Stephen Kwan of the Cleveland Guardians, uh, Dalton Varsho of the Toronto Blue Jays, and then uh, Austin Hayes of the Baltimore Orioles. Um, this is kind of tough because like Varsho as a left fielder doesn't deserve it over Stephen Kwan, despite the fact that Varsho is, yeah, better than Kwan in the outfield. But, like, is this an outfielder general gold glove, or is this left field specific gold glove? And now, remember, if it were an outfielder general, they do have the utility award now. And Varsho was... I don't believe he was nominated for that. Let me... He was not. So... Yeah, I mean, I think if you're evaluating on just, like, it's just the left fielder gold glove, it's got to be Quan. Yeah, um, it's got—I went with Stephen Quan. I feel really bad for Dalton Varshow for two reasons. Number one, I think—okay, hot take. I don't think the return for Gabriel Moreno was that bad. Like, I don't think the process of that trade is bad. Varshow should have been better than what he was. Not even just that. Like, he's— just Kevin Kiermeyer, basically. And if you get healthy Kevin Kiermeyer, that's an awesome player. Like, I don't care what people tell me. That is a, an objectively really good player to have on your team. And number two, like, I, I'm sorry. I'm not saying that you, that Alejandro Kirk was like a superstar, but did we both, like, did you have Alejandro Kirk being a bad hitter ever on your radar? Wasn't the whole thing that he was never supposed to be a bad yeah, hitter and was supposed to be a bad defender? That was kind of crazy. Like, I get it. Like, I'm not saying he, I'm not saying he put himself in the best position to play well this year. Um, but like, come on. Like, I'm not, I just, I don't, I, I, I feel bad for him for that reason. And as you mentioned, he's not going to win a gold glove and he might've been the best defensive player in the American league, right? Like he might've been, might've been. That's hilarious. Like, that is, again, that is a hilarious... It's objectively strange. It is so funny, dude. Like, I I don't know... He should have been a nominee for the Utility Award. Absolutely. Because he, he should have won. Right. Because he, he played great defense in center field and left field, and that's really valuable. But, like, again, is it an outfielder, just general gold glove? Then he should win. But if it's specific to left field, Stephen Kwan played better in left field than Dalton Varsho did. And so it's... I don't mind if you vote for Varsho because I think, like, the guy, again, as you said, the best defender in arguably baseball this year should probably win a gold glove. But it's just weird because he wasn't nominated in center because he didn't play enough innings there, I think. And then he wasn't nominated for the utility, which that one was like, oh, okay, 
they messed up. Like he's going to walk away without a gold glove. And that's, that's rough. That's so rough, man. Also blue Jays. If you want to maximize the value of that deal, play him only in center field, just play him in center field. He'll have, he'll, he'll probably put up like he'll win the gold glove every year out there. Even if he's a 90 WRC plus hitter, You'll have a three-win player and, a, like, a five-win player on baseball reference. And for the rest of your life, you will never have to feel that bad about the Gabriel Moreno trade. Just just do that. I don't – now that I think about it, like, why did they play him not – like, why did they get a center fielder, like, to, to replace – like, why didn't they – like, what was the – I think they just wanted a really good defensive outfield. That's fine, but, like, man, they kind of, like – Get a left they, fielder. They kind of dropped the ball into, like, the, the whole value thing. Like, I think at the end of the day, like, it won't hurt them that bad in the long run. Like, is Gabriel Moreno why? No, because he'll probably be the center fielder next also, year. Also, like, like, is Alejandro Kirk going to be that bad next year? And also, like, was were they Gabriel not. Moreno away from a World Series? No. Moreno's still not good defensively, despite the fact I'm about to mention him I mean, yeah. in just a second. We'll, we'll get there. But, yeah, no. Blue Jays, I mean, I'm saying this is the Yankees fan, but, like, from a baseball fan perspective just put Varsho in center field i feel bad for the guy he doesn't deserve to get the slander he gets yeah um in the center field category it's actually just the top three guys in outs above average it's kevin kiermeyer of the toronto blue jays luis robert of the chicago white Sox, and julio rodriguez of the seattle mariners um it's gonna be kiermeyer and it should be. He played significantly less innings than them and had the same OOA as Luis Robert and one more than Julio Rodriguez. But he also had a significant more amount of defensive runs saved. And the thing you have to remember about outs above average is it does not include arm value. Um, and defensive runs saved does. Now, you could just go to StatCast arm value and like compute it and everything like that, and that'd be fine. Um, also, it's Kevin Kiermeyer. Like he's so clearly the best defensive center fielder here. Um, nothing against J. Rod or Luis Robert. They're both fantastic players. I do think it's funny that uh, J. Rod is negative by defensive run saved. Like that's a little strange. Um, but it could be how they measure where he starts and everything like that. Defensive run saved is a little bleh at that. So, but it's Kevin Kiermeyer is going to win. Yeah, Kevin Kiermeyer is. I mean just kind of always been just like a generational defensive player and go get, I want him to get another gold glove. Like he deserves it. And uh, yeah. And um, you know, if he's feeling like he wants to stay in the AL East, but doesn't feel like he's at home in Toronto, you know, he's always welcome to come to the Bronx. Uh, I've, you know, I'm uh, again, just like, you know, I'm all about people being valued the way they should be. And I'd love to, well, I mean, I don't think he'd be valued the way he should be in New York, but um, yeah, no, I mean, he deserves a gold glove. Moving to right field. Um, Odolis Garcia, he had two outs above average. Odolis Garcia of Texas uh, was nominated. Um, Kyle Tucker of Houston was nominated. And Alex Verdugo of Boston was nominated. Um, Adolis had seven defensive runs saved and two outs above average. Verdugo had nine defensive runs saved and one outs above average. And then Kyle Tucker had one defensive run saved and negative four outs above average. And meanwhile, like, Will Brennan and Max Kepler both weren't nominated for some weird reason. Like, I don't know. Pick whoever you want. You get it wrong no matter what. Like, there's no good option here. Like, it it all kind of stinks. I went with Adolis because he had more fielding run value. 
That's literally, I have no problem with Verdugo winning it. I mean, I have a personal problem with it, but not like a baseball problem with it. Um, but yeah, I don't know what they were thinking when they made finalists, not going to lie. Um, but hey, it's not like, I guess they really cared about the DRS thing, but even then, why did Kepler not get it uh, over, I mean, I don't know. This was a, why did Kepler not get it over Tucker? I guess that's kind of like the big thing for me. I can get him not. Yeah, Kyle Tucker being nominated is just that's just bad. Yeah, like I can get Agdolis <laughs> and uh, Verdugo both. I think they both should have been a finalist, and I will understand why one of the two will win it. Um, but why was Kepler not there is is really my big question. Um, and does Brennan qualify? I know that there was like there are qualification rules. He yeah, he might have been under on the innings. It's it's he was right there though. It was really damn close. Um, but yeah. Pick whoever you want. <laughs> yeah, I just I, look. Uh, it's Verdugo or Garcia, and one of the guys I have less moral uh, complications with. So I'll go with Adoles Garcia, and also has more fielding run value. Fair enough. Uh, pitcher Jose Barrios of Toronto, Sonny Gray of Minnesota, and Pablo Lopez of Minnesota. So if you're a Twins fan, I guess you feel good about the nominees here. Uh, who cares? It does not matter. It like <laughs> you you could have picked. Somebody that nobody had ever heard of, and they could have won, and I would have been fine. I really don't care. Like, it's the pitching gold glove. Unless you're, like, Greg Maddox, who won, like, a bunch, then or Jim Cat. I don't care. I really don't. Neither do I. Uh, just, you know what? Give it to Pablo Lopez because uh, he had the lowest XERA in the league, and he should win something. Boom. There you go. I'm, there you go. Sweet. Good with that. Um, utility category for the American League, uh, Mauricio Dubon, who was also nominated for second base, uh, gold glove, Zach McKinstry of Detroit, and Taylor Walls of, uh, Tampa Bay was, uh, are the nominees for this one. This one, um, <laughs> anything that involves Taylor Walls, I'm always just like, uh, really, really? We have to go with Taylor Walls here. Um, it's it's a little tough um, because, you know, Walls was, if I remember correctly, really good at, like, multiple spots this year. Like, if spread around the infield, he was pretty damn amazing. I don't actually have their individual pages pulled up because so, Fangraphs is not letting me just, like, have access to all of their outs you know outs above average and everything like that if i remember he's a drs but not good outs above average guy and he's also not good in field, like he's never been an outs above average guy it's always been like he has plus he has 23 defensive runs saved that shortstop negative two outs above average four defensive runs saved that second base in his career negative seven uh outs above average it's such a weird thing i have no idea what it is yeah that's a weird gap but he was worth 10 defensive runs saved this year um across three different spots that's pretty good. Um, Mauricio Dubon obviously played goddamn everywhere for Houston. I mean, he was playing games in, like, right field at times, I thought. Um, I, I could be obviously completely off. But I know he played the outfield at times this year. Um, he was also just weirdly very good this year. Um, but, yeah, he was worth two defensive runs saved and four outs above average in the outfield this year. He was playing right field. Haha. Uh-huh. <laughs> he played four innings there, but it counts. Counts. Haha. Uh-huh. Got him on a technicality. And then he was worth um, 
five defensive runs saved and negative one outs above average. At oh my base. god, did he actually play everywhere except for catcher? Yeah, again, yeah, he did. He played everywhere. Oh my god, That's, yeah, wow. So like, if you go by the definition of utility, like, um, you know, it it could be him. Um, McKinstry, you know, he's part of a Tigers team that I guess if you feel inclined that they should win something. Maybe you go with McKinstry, right? He did, again, another guy who played a lot of different spots. He was actually kind of good this year, if I remember correctly. Oh, no, not with the bat, but um, he was okay value-wise because he was a pretty good base runner and uh, obviously getting nominated for a gold glove. But, yeah, he had three defensive runs saved, one out above average in the outfield this year. Um, he wasn't amazing at shortstop, but he was pretty good at second base. He was average at third base. Yeah, I mean take your pick i guess again like nobody's like last year it was like dj lemay who was like the overwhelming choice this year it's i don't know good luck like make it make a call i think i'd probably go with um dubon here just because he literally did play everywhere um but yeah i mean it's not it's not super obvious you know, I originally, like, I tweeted out my list and I put McKinstry on there. I might have to switch my pick. I might go with Dubon. Like, I I'm, I know, like, it's such a marginal gap in, like, Fangraph's defensive value and StatCast's outs of average and, like, fielding run value and all that. But as you mentioned, he literally played everywhere. So, you know what? Mauricio Dubon, you played everywhere except pitcher and catcher. You can get it. That's you. Yeah, you can have it. It's yours. Uh, it's not going to matter. And you know what? Um, if we're honest with ourselves, Max, if we're trying to also predict who we think is going to win, Dubon will beat Zach McKinstry, I think, in a vote. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I'll, I want to be I right. I think that's fair. The last American League award is catcher, which the nominees are Jonah Heim of Texas, Alejandro Kirk of Toronto, and Adley Rushman of Baltimore. Uh, it's Heim. Like, he's so good behind the dish. Like, the winner in the National League, who we'll discuss in a bit, is clearly the best at it. But if that guy didn't exist, it'd be Heim. He's really damn good back there. I have no stipulations. And, yeah, it's it, it's Heim. Um, but I do actually think they did a pretty good job with the nominees here. Like, I, I thought they, they, they kind of got it right for the most part. Um, moving to the National League, at first base, <laughs> Freddie Freeman of the Dodgers was nominated, which makes no sense. <laughs> He was not particularly sharp at first base this year. Um, Walker um, is trying to make it back-to-back. He had 12 outs above average. Um, Santana um, had 11 defensive runs saved, which led all first basemen. Freeman did have three outs above average, but like it was pretty damn bad by defensive runs saved. I think I'm going with Walker here. I, again, he's just really good. Um, just in general, kind of, I'm glad the postseason has kind of revealed to people like, yeah, man, Christian Walker, pretty good. Um, but yeah, it, it's Walker, but it's him or Santana. Freddie Freeman's inclusion makes no sense though, but it's also like the position was just not very good this year. Yeah. Um, Christian Walker, it's your award. Congratulations on going back to back. Yeah. At second base, we have Nico Horner of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Ha-Sung Kim of the San Diego Padres and Bryson Stott of the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, this is actually pretty interesting. Stott and Horner are 
Stott had plus 16 outs above average. Horner had plus 15, but Horner was much better defensively. Um, and then Kim, uh, I believe he was also utility nominee, right? Um, Lord knows he probably should have been. Uh, he was. Um, he's probably not going to win it for second base because Horner and Stott were both better than him at second base by the numbers. But he's really good over there, and you know he's probably going to win the utility one. But I think I'm going Horner here. But Stott's not a bad choice. Yeah, I won't Stott. That's what that's what I went with. Um, yeah, I think the. It, Horner might have the better defensive run saved, right? Yeah, but I, I think I think when it comes down to tiebreaker for like infield outs above average versus infield defensive run saved, I think I'm going to go with outs above average. But as you mentioned, like if Nico that's Horner fine. wins, I'm not going to be like this is a robbery. I'll be like, yeah, cool, congrats, man. Like that's like th- that is one of those. It's like how I felt about right field. I think I actually distinguished this as well. If the other, if the guy who I assume finishes second wins, I'm not going to be like, oh, this is bad. I'm be like. Cool, good for him, man. Except I won't really be like good for him for Verdugo, but definitely for Horner. Horner seems like a cool dude, so yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, yeah, it's. I think the difference is like they're really close and outs above average, but Horner's much better by defensive run save than Stott is, so I think that ends up kind of swaying my opinion a little bit. Um, third base in the National League. This is probably the easiest of the awards outside of maybe right field. Uh, Cabrian Hayes of the Pittsburgh Pirates was nominated. Ryan McMahon of the Colorado Rockies was nominated. And Austin Riley of the uh, Atlanta Braves was nominated. Um, McMahon and Riley were both actually pretty good defensively this year. But Cabrian Hayes is the best defensive third baseman in baseball by a goddamn long shot. And he should, he should win here very easily. He should have won it last year. Absolutely. I will be... This is the one where, like, if he doesn't win this award, I will be irate. Because he should have won it last year, and the reason he didn't was because of Nolan Arenado's legacy. And, like, the the, the reputation he has as a defender. Not just... Not, this is not a... This is not like a Nolan Arenado rant. Nolan Arenado... Nolan Arenado... Nolan Arenado... Oh, my God. I can't pronounce names. Nolan Arenado should not be blamed for voters not getting it right. But Cabrian Hayes should absolutely win this award by a country mile. It shouldn't be close. If you do not vote for Cabrian Hayes, honestly, okay, Max, I've had this take and I've texted you about this. I think people should lose their votes based on certain things. Yeah, you have said that. MLB has a really, look, Major League Baseball has a golden opportunity. This is a great opportunity. Have everybody submit their Cabrian Hayes ballots. Tell them they must attach their names. It won't be public, but just for Major League Baseball to know. And then ban them from voting if they don't vote for Cabrian Hayes. That's the right way to you want to get you want to get this right. That's what you do. I think it's the right way to handle it, Max. I know it sounds extreme. I sound like I sound a little crazy right now, but it's because he should have won it last year. He is clearly the best defensive third baseman in the baseball, and he doesn't have a Gold Glove. He does not have a Gold Glove. I think that's crazy. So. Just he might win the platinum glove too. One. Like that's he. Sh- I don't know if he should, just, but it's close. It's close. Right. Just get him. Let him. He, give him the gold glove. That's just like my point is. If you don't vote for him, you shouldn't be able to vote. That's all. Um, National League shortstop. We have Francisco Lindor of the New York Mets, Dansby Swanson of the Chicago Cubs, Ezekiel Tovar of the Colorado Rockies. Lindor had a very had another very good year, um, at shortstop, and Ezekiel Tovar was very good shortstop really really good but i think we are in agreement here uh danzy swanson pretty pretty damn good at shortstop and he's probably walking away with this award uh yeah i would argue that you should this is not close 
I I know, like I get it. Like I love Lindor. That's my guy. Lindor, he, he he's my guy. That's my that's that's I I think he's a, a wildly underappreciated superstar. But Dansby Swanson, I think, it also at this point, kind of become the best defensive shortstop in baseball. He has forty outs above average over the last two years, which is ridiculous. It is. Uh, it's the most in baseball. It's not just the most in his position, which I think is a good distinction for me to make right now. Um, the gap between him and second base place, which is William Adamas, and I actually got the stat wrong when I told you originally, uh, is f- plus fourteen, which would be the fifth best uh, outs above average at the position. Um, since that time span. Now, the gap between him and Lindor would be 22, which that would be the third best. Now, in defensive runs saved, he has 27, which is tied for the most. So um, it's hard to argue that he's just an OAA merchant, as some people may say, but I don't even think that's really a thing. If you're a good defensive run saved guy and the best in outcome of average, you're not a merchant. You're just better in the more valued metric. Yeah, this guy's clearly, I think, the best defender at his position. Fangraphs also views him as the best defender at his position over the last two years. 41.9 defensive runs. That is, again, first by a pretty large margin. It is by nearly 10 runs. It is by 9 runs on the dot. Um, So, yeah, Max, that's where I'm at. Dansby Swanson, congratulations on winning what should be your second gold glove. And honestly, should he be competing for the platinum glove? Probably, right? Like... I don't know if he'll win it. I don't think he. Sh- I don't know if he should win it, but he should compete for it at the very least. Yeah. Again, I think should win it. I think we agree on who should win. It. I think deep down we both know we're we're on the same level as to who we're going to pick for that award. But we'll let that uh, carry on. Moving to left field, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> Ian, it's they didn't. It's not necessarily they nominated the wrong guys. It was more just like if you look at it, you're just like, uh, who cares? Um, Ian Happ of the Chicago Cubs was nominated. David Peralta of the Los Angeles Dodgers was nominated. And Eddie Rosario of the Atlanta Braves was nominated. Um, Rosario should win because both of the other guys are negative and outs above average. And Ian Happ is goddamn awful by outs above average. But he won last year. So it'll be Rosario, though. Right? Right? Like, it should be. Yeah, uh, this this was the worst position to vote for. Uh, I did not like voting for this position. But Eddie Rosario, statistically, yeah, he's the best left fielder in his group um, and of his of his pool of finalists. Um, so he should win it. Like I, I'm not gonna, and I'm also not gonna sit here and be like, you know, uh, I can't believe they're giving Eddie Rosario a Gold Glove. Like he's the best of his group of finalists. He should win the Gold Glove. That's how I feel. Right. Um, not gonna knock the guy because the other people around him didn't play well uh, at the position, but. Yeah, definitely. Eddie Rosario winning a gold glove is definitely not something you ever expected to say, but we could be saying that very soon. Here we are. Uh, For center field, it's Brenton Doyle of the Colorado Rockies, Michael Harris of the Atlanta Braves, and Alec Thomas of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, It's Brenton Doyle. He was unbelievable out there in center field this year, and that is not an easy place to play center field. So I feel like if you don't vote for him, like it's kind of getting into Cabrian Hayes territory there. Like, you have to vote for him. He was so clearly better than everybody else out there in center field. It, it should be Brenton Doyle. This might be a better candidate for the uh, voter test because not many people know Brenton Doyle. Right. They might not even Brent. know who he is. Right. So, <laughs> my, so, so this would tell you who doesn't vote for Doyle doesn't like doesn't know baseball. They don't. They don't follow the sport. They are not. They are lackadaisical in their uh, following of this great game, of our beautiful, amazing, uh, religious, uh, not religious, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other words here, over dramatic or high, high, for hyperbole here. Um, but Max, our game must not be uh, soiled by those who can't appreciate the greatness of Brenton Doyle's defense. Um, yeah, that's how I feel. Give him the award. Crown that man. Uh, and he should also be in contention for the Platinum Glove. Agreed. 
Into right field we go. Another guy who uh, should be in, in contention for the Platinum Glove. Uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. was uh, of the San Diego Padres was nominated. Mookie Betts of the Los Angeles Dodgers was nominated. And Lane Thomas of the Washington Nationals was nominated. Um, it's, again, it's Fernando Tatis Jr. No disrespect to Mookie Betts, but Tatis was amazing in right field this year. Yeah, um, I will. it's a crime against my people if he doesn't win it. Now, I will say this. Has Fernando Tatis Jr. done himself many favors with voters or just people in general? No. No. But, <laughs> but, let's be fair. Let's be fair. It's not like he's, like, the things he's done are stupid, but they're not, like, I wouldn't call them morally reprehensible. I'd just call them stupid. He's a stupid guy, but he put up 29 defensive runs saved. So, yeah, you can win the gold glove if you're an idiot and put up defensive. That, yeah, like, that's just how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> complete agreement um at catcher we have <laughs> we have patrick bailey of the san francisco giants gabriel moreno of the arizona diamondbacks and jt real muto of the philadelphia phillies Muto being nominated as a travesty that guy should be nowhere near this thing he was pretty awful back there this year uh moreno blocks pretty well and throws guys out at a pretty good clip um but uh, Patrick Bailey is probably the best defender in baseball at this point. He is so good at framing and has a cannon for an arm that it's it's not particularly close how good he is behind the dish. I mean, when you had Colin Wilber on, we were talking about how good Patrick Bailey is back there. I mean, and he's flat out amazing. Dude's unbelievable. Yeah, um, Patrick Bailey is... Uh, this is the guy I was like hinting at, like... I, I think he's my vote for Platinum Glove. Now, technically, Brenton Doyle has more uh, fielding run value. And, like, I think he – but, like, the issue, I think, with that is that fielding run value. I'm not sure if it's – is it positionally adjusted? I don't think we've ever gotten clarification. I don't think it is, right? I don't think it is. And also, Doyle played a lot more innings because he's not a catcher. Right. But also, like, we have when we're adjusting for positional value, being two runs worse in fielding run value but playing catcher, like, it's just a different – it, center field's what third in positional adjustment in terms of value it's catcher gap shortstop gap and center field second third gap right um yep yeah patrick bailey best defensive catcher in baseball best defensive player in baseball stud just a stud could you imagine if this dude ever has like a 115 wrc plus like could you imagine that oh he'd be he 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 listen if he ever found a way to be like an elite hitter like a 130 plus season he probably uh Probably have like he should win MVP if season. he ever has a one twenty five WRC plus. I think. Yeah, he he yeah. he's that good. Um, pitcher, <laughs> Jesus Lazardo, the Miami Marlins, Taiwan Walker, the Philadelphia Phillies, and uh, Zach Wheeler of the Philadelphia Phillies. I just give it to Wheeler because he's cool. Like I like Lazardo and everything. Walker's actually like known as a pretty good defender, but like Zach Wheeler's a boss. Give it to Zach Wheeler. Yeah, sure. I mean, he didn't win a Cy Young and. Yeah, right. So you gotta win something. Yeah. Give him it's something. Kind of like the Lopez it. thing. It's like his XCRO is good. Give it to him. Sure. Right. Um, utility: Mookie Betts of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Tommy Edmond of the St. Louis Cardinals, and Hassan Kim of the San Diego Padres. Um, this is actually kind of close um, because all of them are relatively good uh, at multiple spots, but. I feel you gotta go with Hassan Kim. Like he's so really, really good defensively at multiple spots. I know the numbers say that him and Edmund are pretty damn close, and I really don't mind if Edmund wins. But I, I feel like I gotta go with Hassan Kim here. Yeah, uh, he's not gonna win at second base, which understandably so. Uh, so 
and he's clearly one of, if not the best defender in Major League Baseball. So give him the utility one. I think it's kind of simple. Yep, completely in agreement. And so that's our our recap of the Golden Glo- oh, Gold Gloves. Um, these things used to mean something, but then Derek Jeter won five of them. Um, and, you know, Rafael Palmero won one when he played 23 games at first base. And so they've got a lost a lot of weight. Um, but they're they're good. I mean, the, the nominees this year weren't awful like normal years, but there are some where it was pretty bad. Um, looking forward, you know, the next time we record, we could potentially have a World Series winner, though I highly doubt it. Um, more than likely, we will be updating you between potentially the Phillies and the Astros. Um, maybe, maybe the Diamondbacks come back. Maybe the Rangers come back. Uh, I think we're in agreement that it will be a rematch. I just want to end on this note because uh, you've been listening a long time, and so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But just because it's a rematch does not prove that it's not random. If you run this these sequences multiple times, this is a possible outcome, but it is not a likely outcome, making it, therefore, random. So the playoffs, unfortunately, are a crapshoot. You have to, like, that's just the truth. I know Yankee fans, for some weird goddamn reason, are really, like, brushed up about that. But, like, it's a crapshoot. Um, there are some some things that might lead to success. But, again, like, the Rangers could win the next two games. The Diamondbacks could win the next two games. And, like, we'd just be like, okay, we clearly know nothing. Like, it's, it's utterly random. So, um, thank you very much for listening. To this episode, Ryan, thank you very much for joining me. Um, remember to stay tuned. We are hoping to get back on some special episodes here soon. Uh, we are wrapping up the fall at my high school, so you know, going to have a little bit more free time here soon. Um, thank you very much for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and have a great rest of your week. Mm-hmm.